MSW Media. So, Asha, are Republicans going to be able to muck up the Manhattan prosecution of Donald Trump? Eh, it's complicated. I'm Asha Rangappa. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent, and I'm a legal and national security analyst. And I'm Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down to a soundbite or a tweet. It's another late night. Is it? Indeed. <laughs> you you've got you've got a glass of wine. I am blitzed because I went out uh, with a client, so I've already had a few drinks. So I'm way ahead of you. Oh, okay. Uh, so it should be better. a fantastic episode. And we, f- f- full disclosure, we're re-recording this for a bunch of reasons. But one of which is we got some new news, right? I mean, we have a yeah. new lawsuit filed by my Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg. I got to give the guy credit. He's a very aggressive individual, he is, right? He is aggressive. He's, He's not, not afraid. Around. He's not afraid. Um, yes. So basically my internet went out while we were recording this morning. And then by the time it came back, which it's so weird, it was out for, you know, all day. Um, we got this new news and basically uh, it looks like Bragg has filed a lawsuit in uh, federal district court in Manhattan. Um, I guess challenging Jim Jordan's authority to conduct oversight uh, over his investigation or prosecution of Trump. And then also asking the court to invalidate a subpoena that Jordan has issued to Mark Pomerant. You know, it's an interesting word you used, Asha, oversight, right? Because we usually think of oversight in the context of Congress overseeing the actions of, let's say, the executive branch. Right. And right, they appropriate money and they want to make sure that, you know, the executive branch isn't doing something uh, improper, illegal, whatever with the money. Um, here he wants to oversee what like a totally separate sovereign entity is doing, right? A totally different uh, level of government. It's an unusual uh, exercise of congressional authority, to put it mildly. Yeah. So this implicates federalism concerns, right? That, um, I mean, this is the party of limited government <laughs> and states' rights. So I'm not really sure what, what's exactly happening here. But you're absolutely right. The oversight um, function of Congress, which isn't explicitly laid out in the Constitution, but is implied as essentially a separation of powers check, right? This is their ability to uh, gather information uh, that can also inform their own job. In other words, if they don't have the oversight ability, then they are unable to create the laws that they might need to create to, you know, fulfill other parts of um, of, of their Article One functions. It's hard to see where that applies here, though I think Jordan's hook is he wants to know what federal funds uh, Alvin Bragg might be using in this um, prosecution. 
Yeah, it's very bizarre, right? Because on its face, it's not clear that there's any federal funds being used by uh, the Manhattan DA. It's a it's a local prosecutorial entity. And putting that to the side, I mean, you know, the you know, Jim Jordan and his, I think, aptly named Weaponization Committee, although not for the reasons they think, you know, they they've been, you know, making all of these arguments about how Bragg isn't doing enough to fight violent crime in New York and they're trashing New York. Uh, I mean, it's kind of weird, right? He's a he's a guy from Ohio. He represents Ohio. I'm really not sure what any of this, uh, what any of his thoughts in New York are relevant to anything, right? Well, yeah, I I was reading that they plan to do some kind of field investigation where they're gonna, um, yeah, they would be holding. I'm reading from the Washington Post. Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee announced that they would be holding a field hearing in Manhattan next week to examine how Bragg's, quote, pro-crime, anti-victim policies have led to an increase in violent crime and a dangerous community for New York City residents. How is that their concern? It's bizarre. They're spending our taxpayer dollars to all travel to New York uh, to do this. It reminds me of during the Trump administration when they... You know, Bill Barr came to Chicago to like come preaching us about how awful our city was <laughs> and how, you know, we're the scourge of whatever, you know, we're, we're the scourge of America and why Trump needed to get reelected. It's just a bizarre political sign. And let's face it, I don't think Jim Jordan cares a lot about the people of New York. If he does, he has a weird way of showing it. I mean, dissing their city and talking down to them is not a good way of showing actual concern for people in New York. Um, I think, you know, it's just what's interesting to me is just how transparently they're an arm of Trump. I mean, you know, it's an interesting thing, right? I mean, uh, you know, most defendants, when they get indicted, are effectively powerless against the state. I mean, very little. Yes, you have these ability to challenge things in courts, but you're you're basically so the power disparity is so great. Uh, you know, the government puts out this press release, and that just overwhelms anything you could say on the defense side about it. And you know, it ruins the person's life. They often lose their job or their business is ruined. Um, and they don't have the ability to fight back in any conventional way. But here, you know, Trump is exchanging information, right? There was these reports, Asha, about, I think, exchanging information with this weaponization committee and so on. So essentially, uh, Jordan is using our tax dollars to further, like, the Trump legal strategy. Right. They're an extension of his legal defense team. Um, and Fox News is his personal PR arm. I mean, we know that, you know, from the Dominion lawsuit that they're there to promote pro-Trump narratives because that's what their audience wants to hear and they're going to lose their audience if they don't. So he's he's got this whole, I mean, propaganda arm. Um, and I that's what I actually think this weaponization committee is, is, is large, I mean, because they're so little there legally as such a thin legal basis that is really there to create it to be performative right and to the question that you asked opening this episode to kind of muck it up and um, create a lot of noise around this investigation uh, so that public perception is then um, altered yeah, so Trump, I mean, he has really, I mean, he's using our own tax dollars, essentially public resources in part for his legal strategy. He really has something that 
you know, he, you know, was, is less than perhaps he had when he was president, but still very substantial, very different than the typical defendant. And I think what he's really trying to do is actually do whatever he can to push the, the judge's buttons and try to push the envelope to create a situation where the judge feels compelled to issue a gag order or take some other action against him. I think Trump is looking for a way to recuse the judge or try to, you know, at least make a motion to suggest that the judge is unfair. And, you know, regarding a gag order, I mean, the judge, I think, is very wisely in this case, you know, not taking the bait, not issued such an order. It hasn't even threatened it. And that's, you know, look, the, the speech, the free speech, First Amendment concerns regarding a defendant, um, are always, you know, something that is given a lot of weight by judges. But particularly here where Trump is running for president, I, I think the judges wisely steered clear of that. But I think Trump has correctly calculated that that allows him to get away with a lot of what you were just mentioning, Asha, which is sort of creating disinformation and trying to shape public perception of that prosecution. Yeah, I mean, for him, it's a win-win either way, right? Either the judge doesn't take the bait, as you said, and then he gets a very, very long rope, you know, to make really um, crazy statements about the judge, about the prosecutor, about their families, things that I think no other defendant would get away with being able to say. Or he's treated like any other defendant and... Maybe a gag order is placed on him, but then Trump gets to claim that obviously they're trying to uh, disadvantage him as a candidate and they don't want him to talk and, you know, that this is going to, that this is impacting his First Amendment, not just first free speech, but also his political activity, right? Because it's intersecting here because he is a political candidate. Either way, he gets to shape this narrative. Um, and then, as you mentioned before, he's got Fox, uh, he's got, uh, Jim Jordan on board, basically laundering this idea that this is politically motivated through a government function. Like, you know, like using the, like a very serious and powerful mechanism that Congress has as a way of legitimizing this narrative so that when it all appears on Fox, it looks legit. Yeah. And I think it's, it's important that you made that point. Asha, because I think that's what Trump gets out of this. In other words, a lot of people were asking me today on Twitter, oh my goodness, is this, you know, is Bragg going to win his lawsuit? Is Jordan going to succeed? And really, for Jordan, from Jordan's perspective, it doesn't matter. I mean, this is all That's about right. creating sound bites on Fox News. And so if he's stopped in the courts, even better, right? He can blame the liberal judges or whatever he wants to claim. You know, the, the reality of the situation is that, you know, congressional subpoenas are challenging uh, to enforce. And the Democrats had to learn that the hard way over multiple years during the Trump administration. You know, as a, as a practical matter, it's going to take some time for this to wind its way through the courts and whatever, right? And he has a chance, Jordan has a chance, because courts are so deferential to, let you know, the, legis you know, the legislative purpose that Congress says it has. Uh, but it's by no means a slam dunk. Um, but nonetheless, even if he fails or even if it takes too long, um, he's going to succeed if he gets himself a few more hits on Fox News. Yeah. There, by the way, this is for a future episode, but they're already starting uh, some noise around the Mar-a-Lago investigation also. Did you see some of that? There, there yeah. 
I noticed that I, I, something's happening behind the scenes, Asha. There's too many uh, truths yeah. or whatever they're called going out right now. And yeah. you saw that was that trusty guy, uh, not uh, Jim, not so trusty on uh, on Meet the Press uh, this weekend. No, I didn't. Okay. Uh, yeah, you're you're well, you're what you're probably on, on another network at the time or something. But yeah, they had uh, one of Trump's attorneys on Meet the Press talking about the documents case. So clearly, there's something uh, brewing there uh, behind the scenes. They know things we don't, but we'll see. I mean, we'll have to wait and see. I'd certainly, from our outside perspective, it looks like the most serious uh, jeopardy uh, for Trump, and and I think the case that is the strongest. So we'll, you know, we'll have to wait and see. Um, but you know, as I've said before, I wrote, I wrote a column about it. Uh, fighting a war on multiple fronts is hard, and I think it's going to be hard on the PR front for him too. I mean, it's just, it, it's just hard. I, you know, it, it's it's always hard to explain away all these different things. Like when the kitchen sink is coming at you, it could just be challenging. Trump's managed to do it, but it'll be interesting when he's facing all these court cases, whether he can keep it up. I have to say, like, if he's right, we have an incredibly coordinated state and federal system of government that can like put together these very complicated conspiracies on so many different topics and, and frame him for everything. I mean, that was not the government that I knew. Like, you know, government is typically bureaucratic and slow moving. And I don't even think you could get a bunch of people, gov- civil servants to agree on anything in a room. Um, but I guess they're, they're just super sly co-conspirators. Yeah. You know, we, we always, so prosecutors, at least in my district, we have the, this, f- f- fancy jury or jury argument we always use where it's like the unluckiest man in the world. And it's like, so Donald Trump would have you believe he's the unluckiest man in the world, you know, the Manhattan district attorney, the Fulton County district attorney, they're all conspiring against him. You know, you would weave all the facts. You've got to walk through all the facts together, right? The Mar-a-Lago documents planted in his office. Of course, the grand jury subpoena, he must have lost it. You know, that sort of thing. And you play, you'd have this sort of mocking tone. You'd go through all the evidence and show that it's just what a coincidence. You know, yeah, but it gets to you know the fact that there are two courts that are in play. One is the court of public opinion. One is the court of law. And you know, we believe that what it's just what happens in the court of law that matters, and that's true. But the legitimacy of our system of justice and the rule of law is also dependent on people believing and perceiving that it's just and that it's fair. And so his ability to manipulate perception is really important. I mean, we have to pay attention to that and we can't just dismiss it just because now it's in the legal system. Um, because, you know, when we don't want that faith to be eroded. And, and I say this, you know, also when people are poo-pooing, you know, Jack Smith and they're just like, oh, nothing's going to happen. And there's this apathy that comes in. I don't like that either way because you have to believe in it for it to work. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, look, Trump has done more than almost anybody in terms of eroding faith in law enforcement and our judicial system. I think that a healthy skepticism about the exercise of government power is always a good thing. So I don't think people should just... Um, except every time a prosecutor says something or any other organ of government says something, but he has sort of 
without any evidence, without any reason, had so many you know blistering and unfair attacks against every level, really, of our you know law enforcement judicial system. I think it's something that we're not going to recover from for some time. Um, and I, I, one of my you know concerns, I think, going forward is how our uh, politicians are going to be policed. If we do not have a, you know, prosecutorial system that the public has faith in. In my home state, we have lots of corrupt politicians. We just wrapped, we're in the midst of wrapping up a big public corruption trial here in Chicago now in federal court. Um, we rely on federal prosecutors to police our, our system. If we didn't, this state would be in much worse shape than it is. And, and I just think, a lot is lost if we we lose faith in you know prosecutors, law enforcement, the judicial system to police corruption. I agree, but don't forget, Renato, Trump is the unluckiest man in the world. <laughs> it's different in his case. Yes, he is. Hi, I'm Moji Alawodeal from the Feminist Buzzkills Live Pod, the only podcast that helps you navigate the news in this post-pro anti-abortion hellscape. Each week with co-hosts Marie Kahn and Liz Winstead, we dissect all the news from that sketchy intersection of abortion and misogyny with providers and activists working on the ground. The cherry on top is we have amazing comedy guests who help us laugh through the rage. Feminist Buzzkills Live drops Fridays wherever you pod. Listen and subscribe, because when BS is popping, we pop off. So, Asha, we we have to talk about the Manhattan DA case, right? I mean, I, I feel like it's our we, albatross now. It is. Well, we're we were ha <laughs> we were half asleep the last time we talked about it. Let's let's be fair. I gave a BBC interview right afterwards. I listened to it. I, I sounded like I was comatose uh, when I when I listened to it back. Did you ever get those op-eds written? You had like two op-eds to write. I, I, I can't. So I wrote one and I can the other. You know, it's interesting. I, so the one, the one that I op, I wrote, it was about the, what I viewed as an, a lack of clarity in the, um, in the, um, uh, the indictment of Trump. And I am very concerned about that. And, and you know, it's because essentially in the state of New York, um, the crime that Trump was charged with falsifying business records is usually a misdemeanor, but it becomes a felony if you, it is committed with the intent to, to commit another crime. So if you falsify business records with the intent to commit a tax crime or an election law crime or whatever, then that is um, a felony. And I think we both were expecting that the, the indictment would lay out what other crimes uh, Bragg thought Trump intended to commit, and it did not do so. And, and essentially, my column was very critical um, of of that because I just think we all, in this sort of very high profile, very important prosecution in American history, we deserve to know that. And I think the defense deserves to know that. Um, but I certainly, there was certainly um, some strong disagreement from. Uh, one individual I talked to is very familiar with the investigation, um, and I've had a lot of discussion and debate with with former Manhattan assistant DAs and and defense attorneys in that in that uh, in that jurisdiction ever since. Yeah, so and, and I think that this was really the approach that we, almost all the lawyer commentators that I 
was following, it, it was like, well, which crime is going to be the bump up? You know, that was it. And we were like waiting for it to be specified in each of these counts or, or somewhere. Um, and, and it wasn't, and you wrote that piece and I was completely on board. And then we learned that in New York, you not only do not have to, to bump this up to a felony, you don't have to specify the crime that the person intended to commit by falsifying the records in the indictment. And to me, this was the more, even more shocking. You don't even have to specify it to the jury. Like you don't have to like, so a jury could, you know, half the jury could think that he intended to commit one crime and half the jury could think he intended to commit some other crime. And as long as they believe that he intended to commit a crime. So, yeah, if this sounds a little crazy to you, it definitely it was a head scratcher to me. What, what Asha's recounting is essentially what an individual very familiar with the investigation um, recounted to us, essentially relying on a burglary case. Um, there, there's a statute in New York that that uh, makes it a misdemeanor to trespass into the home of another, but it becomes a felony if you do so with the intent to further another crime. So, for example, if somebody had you know brought condoms with them, perhaps to prevent DNA evidence from being left after you know committing a sexual assault, or you know if somebody brought a a, a gun or, uh, you know, duct tape to try to tie someone's hands or, you know, whatever, hand ties, that would be evidence that they were entering the home with the intent to commit a further crime, not just the trespass versus, let's say, bringing a sleeping bag because they just needed a place to stay. And and to clarify that, in such a case, what that burglary case says is prosecutors don't have to specify to a jury or even in the indictment or to a jury he intended to commit rape or he intended to commit assault. The That circumstantial evidence would be enough that he was just going to commit another crime. And we could talk a little bit about the differences between this that case. Because, I mean, I, I could see a jury reasonably coming to that conclusion if someone trespassed into a residence and had a knife and rope and a gun and condoms. I'd say that that sounds pretty crimey to me. <laughs> it does. It sounds like another crimey, right? The, for intent to commit another crimey. But, but, you know, I, I will just say this. I mean, one thing that the listeners should understand that is not typically how, how things work in America. The way it usually works in most jurisdictions is the, the purpose of an indictment is to lock in a prosecutor and they have to specify what you're charged with. And defendants actually have a constitutional right to fair notice now uh, of the, the charges. The argument here is that this isn't the charge. This is some other uh, sort of enhancement. One thing that I will say that it, a couple of things about this. I mean, this is the position that the Manhattan DA's office is taking. Or has at least that's my understanding of where they're at in terms of what their position is. But I don't know if a court in New York would see this statute the same way. Because in this particular case, the other crimes appear to be, we can't be sure, but they're alluded to be by Bragg in a state public statement and in the statement of facts to be um 
election law crimes that are totally unspecified. And they would, I think it's fair to say they're not your typical election law crimes because typical election law crimes don't involve like paying off porn stars as a quote campaign expense. I think that certainly some explanation is necessary there. And then tax crimes that are unspecified. And I think it's pretty well established in our law that tax laws are very arcane. And that's why actually, you know, many jurisdictions you have a heightened requirement for the defendant's uh, state of mind because there's a presumption that the average person doesn't know uh, enough about tax law and is relying on help from others. So I just think the idea that you're going to have a jury sort of figure out themselves, like just sort of like give them a big shrug and like you figure out amongst yourselves what the election crime or tax crime here could be. I think that's very problematic. And I just have trouble believing that, first of all, that the judge would let this go to the jury in that fashion, because there's other ways you could do it. You could have a special verdict form. You could, you know, certainly I think the judge could require in a bill of particulars, which is what I suggested in my column and Politico uh, would be, the, I think, a good avenue for the judge to 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 require more specificity. So I just think that I think that's what should happen here. I think that's what I would think a court would require. But regardless, I just think in this particular prosecution, I really think it would have been in everyone's best interest to just spell it out. Yeah. And I mean, just to use the burglary analogy, it's, I mean, it's hard because you don't have the equivalent of the knife and the rope and the condoms, right? You have this elaborate structure of repayment, which is based on, you know, sham invoices or whatever. I suppose, you know, you. I started to go down the road of like, well, what would be an innocent reason that you would structure a repayment this way? Where you'd have fake invoices for something, for services that were never rendered, that um, artificially inflated the recipient's income um, in order to net the right amount after taxes. I mean, I suppose you could you that th- that could go to something because I don't know that you would have a I don't know that there are many innocent explanations. But as you said, what there's no obvious crime. Like, what is the obvious? What is the crime? I mean, is the jury just left to, as I said before, like feel like that's vaguely crimey and he must have been intended to tending to commit some other crime, even though we don't know what it is? Would Bragg have to say generally tax crime and election crime, even though that they don't specify it. Um, on the other hand, I can see the point in you, if it is an enhancement, he shouldn't have to prove every element of the underlying crime too. Otherwise he would just charge that crime. So what's the in-between, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, there's certainly an open question as to what you'd have to prove. And, and by the way, enhancements of this site of this type are occur in other jurisdictions as well. And there are federal ones where having a pre-existing felony, for example, might up, 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 bump up your maximum sentence. Although uh, federally, the courts have decided have made have determined that those the juries actually have to find those facts that bump up the sentence, uh, the you know themselves rather than a judge because they enhance the punishment. So I, I don't know where that would come out. I mean, I guess what concerns me, Asha, is like in the example of the burglary. 
all of the things you could imagine someone doing with like your burglary tools and, you know, knife and rope and whatever are all very, you know, serious crimes. There's no illegal. Yeah. yeah. But like there, it's very possible that like the average per- person in the jury has no idea what election law is and like would have no idea. They may imagine that something that's not a crime is a crime. I mean, they just, without a lot of, without instruction, they're really going to not have a, a good sense of what that is. So I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think, you know, prosecutors here left their options open, so to speak, but I do think an indictment's purpose is actually to do the opposite. It's to let not only the defendant, but the public know, here's what the charges are. Here's what we think this person did. And if you have the case, lay it out. Um, and I, I, so I still, I guess my, my view on it hasn't changed, but I, I think it's worth but I do, I think it's worth having that discussion and, and you kind of, hopefully everybody listening to this kind of understands the nuance here. And I think it's fair to say, um, there's a lot about, um, about, you know, Manhattan criminal practice that everyone's learning. I mean, in most cases, one thing I learned from talking to practitioners in that jurisdiction is in most cases, they charge other crimes in, in addition to this, uh, falsification of business records. So it's obvious what the other crime is. It's like rarely an issue. That's right. Um, I, they're charging the underlying crime. And so it's obvious to a jury what crime may have been intended to be concealed or committed through the falsification of documents. And I have to say, as I've thought about it more, I don't know if I'm sad panda in this episode, I'm starting to get more skeptical about just the connection between the falsification of business records and the concealing to of the uh, not paying, not disclosing for campaign finance reasons. Mm-hmm. I feel like temporarily it's, it's a little bit farther in, in time. And, you know, I don't know. Like, I just feel like if the idea was to just reimburse Cohen without saying what it was for, I mean, you know, he could have Venmoed one hundred thirty thousand dollars like Matt Gates did and called it, you know, for salad. Yeah, I have to say, I, I really have. I, I've often agreed or long agreed with you and your perspective, Asha, where you said that you thought a tax crime was a. That to me is the most obvious. Like, <laughs> yeah. in other words, if you were to go to a jury and say, "Look, this guy paid this money. Trump had to pay him back. He didn't pay him back with a check, which he could have done. This guy's a rich guy." And, you know, he could have just said it was a check for whatever. He could have just given him a bonus. But no, they went through this very elaborate payment scheme, repayment scheme, that was specifically categorizing this as an expense that would benefit the Trump organization mm-hmm. in, as a, in, when it came to paying taxes. That's what I would say. To me, that's very straightforward. So here's the thing. I agree with you, but I guess I have two questions about that. First of all, it's not clear from the, the indictment and the statement of facts what the tax crime is. I mean, I actually... But this is the beauty. <laughs> apparently, they don't need to say. Yeah, I'm just saying, like, if I, if I had this latitude to... Like, let's not where I didn't even have to tell the jury. My argument would be this could have easily just been a repayment. Mm-hmm. They didn't. They designed this with all these weird shenanigans and they had to inflate the thing and, you know, put this in sham invoices and record it here and do like, why? And we know like they would only go like, why else would they go through this? elaborate scheme and through the organization unless it would benefit the company in some tax way. We know they were thinking about taxes 
because they inflated Michael Cohen's income knowing that he would have to pay taxes. Well, that's interesting. I rest my case. <laughs> well, here's what I think about that. I, I think, I mean, I, I do think the tax angles is um, the strongest. I, I also think, at least based on somebody I spoke to, that they don't, they're not 100% sure of their tax theory at the minute in DA. But I wonder whether they think there's some issue there that you and I don't see. Because I will say, Asha, if I thought I had a, a solid tax theory, I wouldn't have included the election law stuff if I was in their shoes. It's really a confusing it's, – it's confusing. It's not intuitive to think of this as, an, as a campaign contribution. Um, it adds a lot of complexity to something and potential like appellate issues that you really don't need. Um, so I'm really not sure why you do that if you could just have a tax case. It's very straightforward. Well, it adds to the factual background, right? Like you have to establish that this was a repayment for something that was being done on the sly. But I think I think that gets to like there's just a million different not a million, but there's a lot of different ways that he could have been repaid. Right, but why does that why do you need to say that it was done in in, in, in to conceal an election law offense, right? I mean, I wouldn't make that argument. That's my point. I would have just said taxes. Why are you? Why is Why is Bragg up there in a press conference talking about election law? So that's why I'm wondering: Do they see some problem with the tax case that you and I don't see? Because if I'm Manhattan DA, knowing what you and I know, which is less than what they know, I, I would be inclined to just make your argument and not even bring up this election law stuff. Oh, and I have one more tidbit to add. Okay, <laughs> legal gossip. Um, apparently, so one of the underlying election law crimes that Bragg specifies specified in his press conference was conspiracy to promote a candidate in an election using unlawful means. This is New York election law 17-152. Look it up. Um, <laughs> so, um, he said it word for word or very something very close to it in the press conference. So if you're wondering where Asha got that from. Yeah, he said he said he used that and everybody went and, and looked it up. Um, it was I thought people were like, well, why didn't he charge that conspiracy? And it seemed like the answer was because the statute of limitations had passed because the statute of limitations is like two years. But I understand from a former Manhattan DA that he, that that statute of limitations could have told for the same reason with the statute of limitations on everything else has told that's allowed him to told meaning pause the clock that has allowed him to bring the falsification charges and he could have charged the conspiracy. And this former DA thought he may have chosen not to because the conspiracy is also a misdemeanor. And I think maybe have maybe the idea was only to have felonies to avoid all of the optics of having even a misdemeanor charge. But I think if you charge the conspiracy, it would make a lot more sense. Yeah, I, I have to say, too, I mean, it's very problematic to 
have to make reference to a conspiracy that is not charged because conspiracies, unlike something, let's say, you know, Asha was talking about burglary before. Okay. Burglary is, is occurs at a specific time and date. You when you enter the house and you do certain things that, that was when the burglary occurred on that time and date. Conspiracies are these amorphous things that have to be specified by prosecutors. Who was involved? When did it start? You know, at least when did it start? At least did it end by someday? What was the object of the conspiracy, this agreement, unstated agreement between these people? And who was involved? You know, at least, at least these people were involved. If you don't do that, it, it, you actually can have a problem, uh, sort of a due process problem. Yeah, it's a you, you. I mean, how do you how do you bring in all of that evidence about what Pecker and Cohen and Trump were up to like a million years ago? Going back to the burglary analogy, you can point to anything this burglar had on him when he he trespassed, but you can't be like he had a knife in his car five months ago, and you know, like that that's not going to be allowed. A judge would be like, well, that's not relevant. And how is that related? I'm, I suppose, unless that was you charged some other crime where that became connected. Yeah, I, I have to say, I, you know, Asha, if 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 I was a judge looking at a case and a prosecutor tells me, well, we're actually believe that the the, the defendant intended to commit this, uh, you know, engage in this other conspiracy. And by conspiracy to do what, with whom, when? I mean, I'd want some details. And like, why is the, why is this not in writing? Like, why don't why are we not on notice? And why isn't the jury on notice if you're asking them to consider this a conspiracy? Like, usually conspiracies are defined, and it's usually a problem if it's not clear in a charging document the the contours of that. And I get that this is just a quote other crime, but I don't know. Just seems very problematic to me. I, I not the not not the I just not the way that in this type of case um, I would do it. And now I will just say I mean, I'll, I'll throw a couple things out there to be a devil's advocate to myself. One thing that I have heard, you know, I hear from people, Twitter followers, and so on is, well, if you're going to prosecute Trump, why just why not just pull out all the stops and do whatever you got, take any advantage you can, get any edge you can. And then secondly, I hear from people like, hey, you know, so, so, you know, maybe if your case isn't perfect or there's issues with your case, so what? Like you have to hold a president to a higher bar. I think there's something to that, whether the president should be a higher or lower bar. But in terms of cutting corners, I really just believe that prosecutors should be held to a standard where they don't. And prosecutors should actually be trying to do justice and not trying to sort of Take, get every edge, even if it's unfair to win a point. I just don't think that's how prosecutors should be. So to be fair to the Manhattan DA's office, my understanding is they're not really cutting corners because this is how they charge these crimes all the time. So, so I mean, I, I don't, I think it's important to say that, that they're not, you know, streamlining this or making this more obscure than they have in other cases. It sounds like when they charge these, they never specify the underlying crime, though, as you noted, they often charge the uh, another crime, which makes the connection perhaps more obvious. Um, however, I think your point is, in this case, they actually needed to hold themselves to more than just, they needed to look at what kind of note, given that this is such a historical prosecution, 
what kind of notice are they giving and for for the american public to understand what what this is about as much as a, a future jury um and to give notice to the defendant yeah and i guess and i'll even go further than that i'll even go further than that most of the time the vast majority of the time as i understand it this is a non issue in their cases cuz it's obvious what the other crime is but in cases where it's not obvious what the quote other crime is Unless it's a case where, like, you've kind of worked out a plea in advance or, you know, that's why my sense of this is this is a sort of crime that's often charged as like a backstop or a throw in uh, another case for in a crime in indictments where there's other crimes. But if if this is a serious if there's a serious contested case, whether it's John Doe or Donald John Trump, you should let them know if if there's if there's no way of them really to know what the crime is, you should make it clear to them and you shouldn't be kind of quote, keeping your options open and, you know, figuring it out, you know, close to trial um, and, you know, making it a, 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 a mystery to the jury as to what the, the crime is. Even if that, even if a court will allow it, I just don't think it's right. And, and to your point on that, you know, the, not necessarily a throwaway, but like adding it on when there's a bunch of other stuff, um, the charges against the Trump organization and Weisselberg, you know, there were there were, I think, two or three counts of falsifying business documents with the intention with the intent to commit um, or conceal another crime. The underlying crime wasn't mentioned, but there were a slew of other counts, too, um, of, of a, a bunch of other crimes. And in the facts, it becomes clear where the falsification fits into all of the, you know, the double books and the overvaluation and, and all this other stuff that they were doing. Like, it's not a mystery. That is, my understanding is that's a more typical prosecution. And when I say add on, I'm not saying they're not, it's not a serious crime. There's a lot, you know, give comparable federal crimes, lying to a federal agent or structuring or things like that often are put in addition to other crimes, but they're rarely, they occasionally are standalone crimes. Um, but they're, but it's, they're not, they're rarely charged alone. I think my sense is that this is one of those that usually is charged in conjunction with other crimes. And that's what I meant by that. So before we go, um, I guess we could talk briefly about something we didn't talk about. Um, cause you had wanted to bring up, you wanted to do another, another subject and we ended up not doing it this week. Oh yeah. So Renato and I always go back and forth over the weekend on what topics we want to do. Sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes it's not always like this week. There were a bunch of things that happened. Um, and one that seemed like what we would want to talk about is uh, the ProPublica reporting about Clarence Thomas and his half million dollar luxury vacations by some rando millionaire or billionaire in uh, Texas. Yeah. And one thing I said in response to that, and we're, we're talking about this because we try to be very transparent with that, with all of you, uh, is I'm like, hey, you know, I'm a partner at a, at a big law firm and we have cases in front of Justice Thomas. I, I just don't think I can comment on that right now. And so, you know, one thing you'll notice is that sometimes I don't comment on certain stories or about certain judges and stuff. And I do that because I have ethical responsibilities. Uh, actually, you know, even if, if a client isn't my own, if they're one of my partner's clients, they're technically mine because I'm a partner at the same firm. And so I have to be careful. 
um, about that. I, and I, I don't view it as, I, I don't view it as sort of being unfair or pulling my punches. I just think, unfortunately, as a lawyer, there's certain things I can't talk about. Yeah. I mean, I think that's true anywhere, right? Like you have certain things that aren't necessarily prohibited, but end up being very touchy things. I remember when the admission scandal broke <laughs> and, yeah, you know, I had been the dean of admissions at Yale Law School for 12 years and I was a former FBI agent and I was like, well, admissions, FBI, two great tastes that go great together. Like this right. is like totally in my wheelhouse. Um, but, you know, Yale was implicated in that. Um, and so it was a little dicey because I still work there. And um, actually, I ended up giving an interview to the Yale Daily News about something completely different. I had written an op-ed on a kind of tangential issue about what, you know, how this will give the wrong impression to future applicants and dissuade them from applying or something. And Yale Daily News called and in that interview, like I very mildly, you know, had just, you know, suggestions for improvement about Yale admissions and I got in trouble. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, yeah, I don't think any of us want to get in trouble, but it's an interesting thing. I mean, it, I, we talk, we're talking about it now because it's kind of, it gives you a sense behind the curtain. I mean, a lot of people who comment, um, uh, you know, on legal stuff, are, you know, aren't, aren't doing what I'm doing. They aren't practicing law. So they, it's not as big of an issue. And, but I think everybody, as Asha said, everyone's got situations like this. Um, so it's interesting, but we have plenty to talk about anyway. Uh, we obviously, it was a pretty we full have episode. Plenty to talk about, though I am sad because I wanted to talk about Clarence. <laughs> Who, by the way, I mean, he's an alum of our law school. True. I did. I will say this. I, I'll recount a story. I did meet uh, Justice Thomas uh, when I was uh, at Yale Law School, and during the summer, I had worked uh, as an intern in the Senate for a senator. And I saw him in the lunchroom, and I'm like, I'm like, oh, I'm a law student. And he's like, Oh, where do you go to law school? I said, Yale Law School. And he's like, I'm very sorry to hear that. <laughs> and then he walked away. Sorry. He's not. A, he was not a big fan, at least at that time. No, he was not a big fan. My understanding is that he he had put a fifteen cent discount sticker on his Yale law diploma for a wow. long time. But the Yale, the law school courted him back. There's now a portrait of him at the law school. I think in the alumni reading room. There you go. There's a lot of portraits of distinguished jurists at the Yale law school, and. There are. Yes. Some less distinguished. And Bill Clinton. <laughs> and Bill Clinton. M S W Media. <laughs>